Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Thank you for joining us today on EWTN Radio. And we're broadcasting from the Coming Home Network studios in Central Ohio. As our guest today, we have back uh, from the Journey Home program Monday night, we have Chad Gerber, former Mennonite, Presbyterian, Anglican, Southern Baptist in there, right? That's right. That's That's right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) As you said, you were Roman before you were Roman. That's right. I was everywhere. (laughs) I was in, I think, six different denominations before we ended up in the church. Yes. And some of those were quite radically different. I mean, the, the very, very Calvinist yes, yes. at one point. That's right. From Mennonite to Anglicans, already a huge leap. That's yeah, yeah. Not yeah, just not saying Roman Catholic at the end. But yeah. uh, Chad uh, comes to us with great credentials. He's an assistant professor of theology at Walsh University in North Canton, Ohio. He has studied theology at Ashland University, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Duke University, Notre Dame, and Oxford. University. Uh, it, it, it amazes me, Chad, that you're back here. You know, you were there at the beautiful, right. the, the Full enclave circle, of right? Oxford. Yeah, I don't. I couldn't be happier though. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed my time there, but it's the heart of it all. I'm glad yeah. to be back in Ohio. Uh, it's a great place. <laughs> His specialization is the writings of the Church Fathers, especially the theology of Saint Augustine. Chad lives on the fringes of the world's largest Mennonite and Amish community with his wife and four children. And in August of 2008, they were received into the Catholic Church after having belonged to Mennonite, Presbyterian, and Anglican churches, as you said, am- among others. And uh, it's good to have you here. On Monday night, you were able to share some of the aspects of your journey, but as is often the case on the journey home, we don't have the time or the opportunity to really dig into some scriptures. But um, maybe just for the audience for a little bit, uh, most Catholics and Protestants seem to think that they understand where the others stand on their use of Scripture, Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists. But I'm not sure they all know where Mennonites are in Scripture as yeah. a part of the foundation of their theology. Right, right. Well, like other Protestants uh, believe in the uh, the infallibility, the authority of Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but like so many other denominations, there is sort of a canon within the canon, right? A, a certain uh, set of texts that are emphasized above others. Uh, in the Mennonite Church growing up, it was mostly the synoptic gospels, the life of Christ. And within those, as we talked about on the journey home, the Sermon on the Mount, of course, takes preeminence. And you know, yeah. that that is uniquely important in the sense that as a Presbyterian, Certainly we read the stories, and I would use the stories of Jesus and his teachings uh, as moral exhortation Mm -hmm. to the people that I preached. But in many ways, my theology was more based on Paul. Sure. And you're saying the Mennonites' theology is more based in the actual synoptic teachings of Jesus. That's right. Mm -hmm. And the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, that's far more Catholic than most non-Catholics. Sure. Sure, it is. It is. Yes. Which is why uh, Mennonites and Amish ended up almost more in line with Catholic, Catholic social teaching exactly. when it comes to peace and yeah. capital punishment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in these days, in sort of the wide world of Christianity, uh, Catholics and Mennonites are very much aligned on these social issues. In fact, have formed numerous ecumenical groups that meet regularly and so forth, yes. Where, where would the Mennonites end up on the issues of life? On life, most, most would be pro-life. At least those I was around. Of course, there's right. always dissenting voices. Right. But uh, as they are with regard to war, with regard to capital punishment and so forth, they'd fall on the side of life, yes. All right, all right. You've chosen a, a passage that we have dealt with from time to time over the years because mm-hmm. it's such a key oh, sure. one. Um, and it's the John six forty-eight through 56 central verses in John 6 that deal with the words that were such a controversy even during the time of Christ. Mm-hmm about eating the body and drinking the blood. And and let me ask you a couple things before we jump into it. Number one, can you remember back at all to your days being brought up as a Mennonite or even the different, when you were out there Roman, <laughs> did how were these passages dealt with at all? This particular passage, John 6, I don't know that it was ever dealt with. Um, 
John, the Gospel of John itself uh, was was not highly used in the Mennonite churches. I mean, it's sort of the theologian's gospel, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we stuck with the sort of practical moral teachings of the synoptics and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, John didn't get a lot of time, at least that I remember, of course, but um, in my reform days, when we were Presbyterian, Anglican, and, and so forth, spent, of course, a lot more time in John. Um, John 6, however, uh, even though I would have, I led several different studies on John as an undergraduate, um, you know, I can't recall getting much out of it or spending much time with it, of course, because we interpreted it entirely as sort of a metaphorical teaching that was much like the other teachings in John, largely about Jesus as God's Son sent from heaven to redeem humanity, asking of us belief. And, you know, all this stuff about eating and drinking flesh and blood, well, that's just sort of Jesus talk, isn't it? Poetic, prophetic, sort of metaphorical. It is what it is. You know, it's certainly not Eucharistic. That was the one thing we were sure of. Yeah, it, yeah. that's interesting. It, uh, it reminds me of certain poets that people um, recommend. Mm-hmm. Gerald Manley Hopkins. Sure. Great stuff. Yeah. So you get it out and you try and read yeah. it. Yeah, what's he saying? <laughs> what is he yeah. saying? I, I haven't a clue. Yeah, no, I think that's a great analogy. I, I feel that way about, say, like T.S. Eliot trying to read the four quartets or something. It's beautiful, and I love to recite it, but I have no idea what he's talking about, Marcus. Yeah, and you brought up that, but let me also, I'm going to plug in for one of my favorite friends, and that's Dr. Thomas Howard, who's written a wonderful book on the four quartets. Oh, there you go. Yeah, on the four. Uh, I mean, it's an excellent book, but you've got to have that right, right. to get a clue of what T.S. Eliot was talking about. Right, right. Sola Scriptura doesn't work well for T.S. Eliot. <laughs> you need help. You need interpretive authority. That's right. And that is a good analogy of, of what often we do with John chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm not really sure here, and I'm not sure I want to tell anybody that I know what's going on here. Right. So we just jump to chapter 7. Or, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, because if you merely land on the symbolic understanding of these verses, it really does take the wind out of the sails of the whole chapter. Oh, it does. Indeed, it does. Yes. In the whole chapter, including the narrative that introduces it as well, which is richly Eucharistic in meaning. Before we jump into it, one other question then. I mean, why for you this passage for today on, on Deep Inscription? Yeah, this passage was, as we talked about on the journey home, um, a part of the initial stages of my journey when I was uh, rigorously rereading the New Testament during my second seminary degree. Uh, eyes were being opened to all sorts of things in Paul about the Eucharist and participation in Christ. And about that time, I was translating the Gospel of John with a friend just to keep our, our Greek sort of fresh. And we came to, to chapter 6. I was forced for the first time in my life to read it phrase by phrase, line by line, to take seriously the progression of <laughs> Jesus' thought. And there was no escaping it. He meant what he said when he talked about eating and drinking his flesh and blood. And his audience took him seriously. They got it too, exactly. And uh, I, I teach this this passage quite a bit in class, and every single time I read it, I, I notice something different. You know, there's, there's, it, it is one of these passages you truly can go deep into. Well, let me read the passage, and I'm going to read John chapter 6, 48 through 56. But when I'm done, Chad, I think it is important to talk about the entire context. Sure. We can't yes. read the whole chapter 6 right, on exactly, radio. Right, exactly. But let me at least read this so the audience has that before the frontlets of their eyes, mm-hmm. and then uh, uh, we'll have you talk about the context. And this is Jesus, of course, speaking, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. Well, th- this discourse, Marcus, as you know, takes place immediately following what is perhaps Jesus' most famous miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. 
um, the only miracle, interestingly, that's recounted in all four Gospels, which should tell us right away something about the miracle, that it's about much more than just <laughs> bread filling hungry stomachs, right? Um, and the, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 itself, especially as the way John tells it, his unique little spin on it as in comparison to the synoptics, is richly already Eucharistic in meaning. So before you even get to this discourse about eating flesh and drinking blood and so forth, uh, I think a careful reader will already be primed for a Eucharistic discourse. You take a look at the feeding of the 5,000, familiar to, to many of us. You look at the way John tells it. Several things pop out. First, John wants us to know that the Passover is near. Little detail thrown in at the beginning, but not accidental, right? It's very intentionally thrown in there. The Passover is near, and as if to drive it home, he then mentions the fact that there's lots of grass at this time, marking springtime, you know, Passover right. season, right. right? This, of course, is significant because, well, where does the Eucharist come from? It is, in fact, a Passover meal transformed by our Lord, right? So we have the Passover context already. Then as you read the narrative, little things pop out. Uh, Notice, for example, the way Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, and then he distributes it. And who does he distribute to but the men who are reclining? Interesting little note. What's this sound like, of course? The, the, last, the supper. last Supper. The yeah. Last Supper, the institution of our Eucharist. Um, that's exactly what happens at the Last Supper. And the men who are reclining is an interesting little, little uh, point. Jesus himself asks the people, to sit down. If you look at the word on a pipto, it's actually the word for to recline as if to receive a meal. And in John's gospel, uh, he adds the point uh, regarding the men. He had, Jesus asked all the people to sit down, but John narrates it in such a way uh, that he distributes it to, quote unquote, the men who are reclining. We have a Last Supper here, don't we? Right? And as you continue to read, the, the, the connections with the Last Supper just keep piling up. Uh, how many baskets are left over? Twelve. Right? And so a picture here, we have, we have each of the apostles, possibly, we don't know exactly how this played out, but holding a basket of the, the quote-unquote miracle bread, right? Thus, in some sense, foreshadowing the distribution of the Eucharist by the apostles, our first priests and bishops, right, in the church. And all sorts of little things. Most recently, my eyes were opened to the connection between the language that's used for gathering up the fragments uh, and the early church writings. Uh, in early church writings like the Didache, uh, Ignatius of Antioch's letters and the letter of First Clement, the language that those authors use for gathering up the leftover Eucharistic bread is precisely the Greek language used here. The word for gather up, sunagagain, and the word for fragments, klasmata, is precisely the same that we see in this passage. So what we have in the feeding of the 5,000 <laughs> is the Eucharist, really, right? The, the language, everything is there, yeah. Very, very interesting. The sort of thing that you might just, especially as a Protestant, read over and say, isn't this nice? You know, another miracle story, you know. Well, given what John, or at least the person that's recording what John is speaking, however it came down on the paper, sure. in John chapter 20, when it says there's a gazillion things, I think that was the actual the word in yeah, the Greek, right, there's right. a gazillion things yes, yeah. that he could have been reporting, uh, they would have filled up many, many books. But obviously, he chose those things that would help you believe. Exactly. He chose this passage specifically for that context in which he's writing. Exactly. Those people. Yeah, and John doesn't give us the Last Supper. This is his Last Supper <laughs> narrative, isn't it, right? Out of the four Gospels. I mean, we have the upper room, we have a long discourse at the end of John, but we don't have the Last Supper itself. What we have is the feeding of the 5,000 in the subsequent discourse. Interesting context, then, in the early church is as you have John if we can imagine him trying to decide which of the many stories he's going to tell, uh, it may have been that there are people wondering more background for the Eucharist, wondering the connection with more in the right. life and teaching of Christ, which is motivation for him to have given this whole passage. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And if you read the Church Fathers on the feeding of the 5,000, they, without exception, interpret in a Eucharistic fashion. They see it as a prefiguration of the Eucharist. And I think what John is essentially doing is making that more explicit. Yes. We know from the context that the people and then the religious leaders uh, were taken by the sign of the feeding of the 5,000, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they, 
they were moved by that. One, they wanted to make him a king. Or... Yeah, exactly. That's right. And he had to withdraw, didn't he? His disciples headed across uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and he withdrew, as he did many other times when they wanted to, to make him king by force. And this is where we get the famous walking on water story, right? That they go on ahead of him. He eventually catches up and, and uh, does that by simply walking across the lake uh, and joining him. And uh, it's when they get to the other side the next day that the crowds realize Jesus has left. And they come, they catch some ships to the back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They meet up with Jesus, and that's when the famous discourse ensues. Yeah. All right. Okay. Now, um, maybe again for our audience who are listening, John is, I think, of all the New Testament writers, the one that uses the phrase "the Jews" yes. the most. Yes, he does. I think he does. And mm-hmm. maybe it's good. What What do we? That's part of the context. Jesus and the Jews are yes. in the context here. Yes, yes. Yeah, very much throughout uh, this passage, I think you see an underlying conflict between the early Christian community and the synagogue. You know, they're at this point, uh, you know, out on their own. Um, and all this, th- th- you have to read this in the context of the early Christian community being Jewish, yeah. right, being kicked out, making claims, right, that they in fact have the true Passover feast, right? Um, the, the disbelief is a reflection of the disbelief they're experiencing at that time in the late first century, you know, as a, as a minority, as a remnant group who has believed in Mashiach and the Anointed One and in his new Passover meal. So that has to, uh, you have to keep in, con- in mind that context in the late first century in reading this passage, I think, to really understand it. Yeah, the, the phrase, the Jews, I would, I'm not a scholar, but I would guess we have to be careful that that wasn't the Jews in right. general, sure. but when one looks at the New Testament, one sees that all the way through Acts, Paul, they're still going to the synagogues. They're mm-hmm. still going to the temple. Sure. Sure. There was no really intent that this Christian movement would be anything but the continuity of Judaism. Sure. But the reason it wasn't a just perfect continuity of Judaism is that there were those Jewish leaders that rejected Jesus as exactly. the Messiah. Mm-hmm. When he says the Jews, that's the background. Yes, exactly. That's right. those Jewish leaders that were not open to our Lord. Exactly. That's right. And I think that's an important point to make, especially given some of the history of anti-Semitism and so forth, that this is a very specific group of Jews who have, in fact, rejected Christ as Jesus yeah, as Christ. Probably then very clear to John's audience at the yes. time. Oh, he yes. knew who he was talking about, which... Yes. 2,000 years later, it mm-hmm. is not always... And it, well, we know that throughout history has been mis, misapplied. Sure. In, in, like for in verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you, you know, this is this group of leaders in there. Now, this, these are the folk that Jesus is dress, addressing um, in these passages. Verse 60, after this, uh, he'll be addressing... His disciples, mm-hmm. but at this point he's talking to yes. these Still to Jews. The mm-hmm. Maybe more the context, the specific context of these passages. Mm-hmm. The crowds catch up with them the day after the feeding of uh, the five thousand. Um, and perhaps I could read just a, a few lines here at the beginning of the discourse to, to get us into it. Yes, it says, "And when they found him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here?" Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say to you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So the people come to him, and uh, Jesus, in a sense, well, he rebukes them for not recognizing the sign as a sign. Remember in John, miracles are signs. They point to something beyond Mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, And Jesus here uh, rebukes them for uh, their concern merely to fill their stomachs. They want more food. Isn't this great, right? (laughs) Um, And and, and so at this point in the narrative, we have something that I think Protestant Catholics, we are all on same footing here, right? We have Jesus pointing people to goods higher than earthly goods, right? To seek the kingdom of heaven, store up treasure in heaven, all these sorts of things. Of not concern yourself merely with temporal food that perishes and that sustains us only for a while. Seek enduring food that will endure forever, that will lead, in fact, to life eternal, right? 
And he, uh, as throughout the Gospel of John, claims that he's uniquely authorized to provide this food as the one upon whom God has placed his seal of approval, the one from heaven, etc. Right? He can provide this unique life-giving bread. Then as the, the narrative continues, Jesus goes on to uh, push things a little further. It's, this is so very Johannine and that the, the, the discourses progressively unfold. Jesus just doesn't give things right up front, right? He hooks the people, the conversation, then, the conversation then unfolds. And then in, say, verses 34 and onwards, Jesus identifies himself with this enduring food, this bread that they sh- should seek. He's not just the giver of the bread. He, in fact, is the bread. He says, for example, in verse 34 and 35, uh, they say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And it's at this point now in the narrative that we enter the realm of metaphor, as we do throughout John with these I am statements. There's many of them, yep. in fact. You know, right. I am the gate, I am the door, I am the light, etc. And they're metaphors for the way in which Jesus provides redemption to God's people. And the audience knew mm-hmm. when he was using metaphor. Yes, exactly, exactly. And uh, you know, these I am statements, by the way, as many of your audience uh, might, might know, are somewhat implicit claims to his divine status as the one from heaven, because, of course, what is God's name, right, revealed to Moses in the burning bush, but I am. Um, in some cases, uh, as in the walking on water and the later, uh, was in chapter 8 when he's talking, he says before Abraham was simply I am, we have uh, claims to deity that are recognized by his his audience when he simply says, I am. Here he is calling himself um, bread. And this is already met with hostility. We haven't even gotten yet to the eating flesh and drinking blood stuff, right, Marcus? <laughs> right. And this is already problematic, of course, because Jesus is, in fact, making claims to divinity, to being from heaven. Now, who is this guy? This is, this is Joseph's yeah. son. Yeah. This is Mary's son, right? This is this guy from Galilee. So the unbelief starts well before we even get into what we'll recognize as Eucharistic teachings. Yeah, in fact, I mean, the the, the uh, almost sounding cannibalistic verses later mm-hmm. are not the things that sent him to the cross. It right. was these, these other the, early things yes. that were, uh, which he was telling the Jews, Jewish leaders, mm-hmm. uh, using Old Testament prophecy yes. to put himself in the place of their awaited Messiah. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you think about what Jesus is doing here. It's one thing to be a prophet and to point the way to God, to Yahweh, to the Lord, right? Uh, this is a guy who's saying, no, I am, in fact, the bread. This is a guy who's saying, come to me and I will give you rest. He's not pointing to something greater than him. He is claiming, in fact, to be, right, the God he proclaims. And this stuff throughout the Gospel of John gets Jesus in deep, deep trouble with his audience, his members. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be able to find it right now because I've got the different copy of the Bible in front of me, but um, this very allusion to, um, you know, your hunger and thirsting and, and wanting um, uh, to be fulfilled in this way, this in many ways is built on the writings of Sirach mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, this understanding of wisdom, that it's this wisdom that is in fact divine, that's right. going to bring you closer to yeah. God. So he's identifying himself with this yes. wisdom that's been there from, yeah. forever. And what's interesting about the wisdom traditions and the Torah traditions as well is the uh, repeated imagery of eating, right, of the law and feasting on it and devouring and swallowing and it tasting good, and all of these yeah. sort of culinary eating type of sorts of images they're applied. And so it's not without an accident that Jesus goes there. I mean, he's just fed the people, yep. first of all, right? But he's going to use that I am, in fact, whom you need to ingest, right? To have, uh, to satiate a hunger that's much deeper than the grumbling of our stomachs. All right. Before we, I think we're going to take, a, yeah, a break here in a moment. We're going to take a break for all the radio stations to be able to communicate with our, our viewers. Maybe real quickly, uh, the next step coming mm-hmm. in is he's going to is it going to be a broadside or is it going to be a head on at this next point? Oh, I think it's going to be a head on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's they're upset because he's referring to himself as God. He's yeah. going to hit him with something that's good. even more incomprehensible I think yeah, in some yeah. ways. Yeah. And uh, is going to if, if anything is he's really attacking not attacking but challenging those that are following him. Yeah. Will they will they follow? Him? Okay, we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Chad Kerber, and you're hearing us on EWTN, 
your global Catholic radio network. This Deep in Scripture radio program is produced by the Coming Home Network International, a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. You can listen to any of our past radio programs by logging onto our website, which also offers a wealth of information on our Catholic faith, including conversion stories, an online forum, and available resources to help you to find the truth of our faith. Visit us today at www.deepinscripture.com. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Chad Gruber, former uh, Mennonite. He's now an assistant professor of theology at Walsh University, which is a Catholic university. That's right. Of North Canton, Ohio, not far from here. I'd love to get up there more often. Um, there's so much to cover in this chapter. Um, that's part of the problem, really. It, to cover any one part, you should cover the whole chapter sure. at one, but you get tired to cover that whole chapter right, at any right. one time. But well, maybe we should jump right into the to the verses themselves. Uh, and they came across as a stark statement, mm-hmm. didn't they, to the to the Jews? Sure. They, he didn't really build up to it very well to drop yeah. that on him. Well, you know, he he calls himself the bread of life. And this is obviously a metaphor. And I think once again, when you get up through about what the late 40 verses, you're, you're still talking in metaphorical language. Jesus is obviously not bread. He's a Jewish guy, right? He's not, <laughs> not any more than he is a door or light or other things. These are clear metaphors using the classic Johannine I am statements, right? We get to the last 10 verses of the discourse or so. What do we have? And this is the, the eat my flesh and drink my, my blood statements. Do we have more metaphor, metaphor piled upon metaphor, symbol upon symbol? Or do we have, as the Catholic Church and the early church fathers have always maintained, in fact, the interpretation of the metaphor? Right? Hmm. What exactly does that mean? I am bread. Eat me and you will never hunger, you will not drink and you will never thirst. What you have here is, in fact, the interpretation of I am bread. Now, in the Reformation, these were interpreted by, say, Zwingli and those who gave birth to my tradition in the Mennonite Church uh, as just further metaphors. And I think as we started the program, that's one of the reasons that they, in fact, have not uh, been hugely significant in these traditions, because after a while, you tire of symbol, don't you? Right? If it's all just really about sort of believing in Jesus and, you know, and so forth, um, these last 10 verses or so aren't going to play a major sort of place in your faith. But if, in fact, what he's doing here is saying, here's what I mean, I'm talking about the Eucharist, right? Then what we have is hugely, hugely important. A number of things about these verses that you started the program with, uh, Marcus. First, as you notice, uh, people are, are, are struggling with this, right? This, they were already struggling enough with the fact that he's claiming to be from heaven, right? Yeah. That's problematic enough because he is just good old Jesus of Nazareth, right? 
there's of course grumbling and murmuring and, and, and struggling as well over this idea of eating as flesh and bread. It's incomprehensible. You would expect at this point, especially because this is a, a thing we see throughout John's gospel, that Jesus would therefore use this occasion to clarify his teaching, right? If they're being too literal and they're not getting it, Jesus would back up and say, okay, here's what I, what I actually mean. But what we see happening here is quite the opposite. Jesus seems intent on driving home that he means exactly what he is saying. In fact, right now, he is giving us the meaning of the I am bread statements. And you notice he repeats himself. Right? Rather than clarifying back up and give some other meaning, in verses 53 and 54, he goes on and says it again, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He repeats himself. And he also, as you keep reading, throws in uh, some other indicators that he means exactly what he says. For example, the adjective really or truly, as if you almost see Jesus here sort of pounding his fist, saying, no, it really is food. It really is drink. It's a Greek word, alethos. Um, And finally, as he's sort of pushing and driving and trying to make sure he's, he's clear that he means this, he um, switches his choice of words for eat. This is something we often miss, Marcus, in the, in the English and why it's valuable to see the Greek here. Up until this point, he has used the everyday sort of word for eating in Greek, phagain, what you'd use if you grab a sandwich or you know some falafel or whatever you're <laughs> eating. You eat it, right? We get to the section where he's now trying to explain that in fact they need to eat and drink his flesh and blood, he switches to the word trogain, which is a very crude word, a very graphic word that's probably best translated something like crunch or munch or chew Mm. or gnaw perhaps even. (laughs) It's a very animal type of word. And uh, it's used in John's gospel only in Eucharistic context. In all other contexts of table fellowship and so forth, we see the word fogging. But in, Mm. in Eucharistic context, Jesus switches to this very graphic, very vivid word, throwgain, to gnaw, munch, crunch, etc., right? And it, it almost fits in this larger context in John's gospel of John, Jesus, insisting that he, in fact, is truly flesh and blood like all of us. You take the beginning of the gospel about becoming flesh, right? There's this insistence that, in fact, he is exactly like us in every way, over against, say, early Gnostic tendencies to disbelieve in his humanity, believe he was some sort of apparition or something from God, right? You see that same sort of insistence on the literal humanity of Jesus going on right here in the discourse itself regarding the need to eat and drink his body and blood. It seems to me that a key, just to jump ahead a little bit and come back, verse 65, when he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The mystery of this, mm-hmm. the only way you're going to get this is grace. Exactly. Yes, yes. And going back to both of our reform backgrounds, we love these verses in the Reformed tradition we? because <laughs> of the emphasis on grace, the need uh, for God to open our eyes, right? We can't understand apart from his regenerative work. But taking a step back from John and looking at John as a, as a great gift in the early community of the church, mm-hmm. all the sacraments are there throughout John in the context of a great mystery in which the hearer almost has no way of understanding what Jesus is talking yes, about. Yes, right. Yeah, can you blame them? <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. If you look in John 3, you know, he doesn't get sure. what baptism is yeah, going to do. Yeah, yep. That it's born again through the spirit and water. Mm-hmm. By grace, you see that's how you enter into unity with the church. But do we expect Nicodemus to get it? No. Of course not, right. And, and so he's got to use the analogy of being held up on, you know, like the serpent on the cross. Right. In John 20, we've got, they're giving the sacrament of confession. Exactly, yeah. Is anyone at the time going to get it? Sure. No, right. by grace, right. you mm-hmm. are. In the upper room, you have ordination with the washing of the feet. Right. It's there. Yeah. Yes. Is anyone there? Peter doesn't get it. You know, right. wash my whole body. You're not quite getting it. There's everything's there. Even that wedding of Cana, you have right. the sacrament of marriage. Marriage, yes. Here you have the sacrament of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Does Jesus expect his people to get it? Right, right. But you know, I'm almost thinking that it's like um, when when we do education, and you're teaching children, mm-hmm. we're not always 
expecting them to always get it. Right, they're not going to understand. We, yeah. we can either wait until they'll understand, then we'll give it, and then I think we've lost the moment. Sure. You plant seeds when they're young mm-hmm. that are there that later, by grace, well, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here with his audience. Right, right. He's asking for faith, right? Understanding will come later. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Which we will see in the context of Peter later when he says, you know, uh, we I, Yeah, I don't get it, but I'll... I trust you. I got nowhere else to go. You've got the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. I'll, I'll stick with you. <laughs> right, exactly. So here we have the actually literally the explanation of what the metaphors mean. This is what he's yeah. That's he's pre- that's precisely what's going on. You you can't just write this all off as metaphor. I think that's that's the mistake that Protestant interpreters do. We do enter into the realm of metaphor with the I am bread statements, but we don't end with metaphor. We end with explanation, and. Uh, what you have, I think, is you get to passage the, the, the rest of this, which is, in fact, troubling, which does require a great deal of faith, this eating and drinking flesh and blood. And, and of course, you add to this, you know, anti-Catholic sentiment now, and especially in the Reformation, when this passage is being radically reinterpreted by the Reformers, right? Yeah. And it can't possibly mean what the Church means. So what do we have to work with? Well, we've got a metaphor going on. Let's just stick with that, right? It's It's a way, I suppose, to sort of you know, end around and stay away from all that sort of Catholic stuff regarding the Eucharist. I was going to jump us to First Corinthians, but I'm wondering before we go there, are you are, you got a little bit more in this passage, or are you are you ready to make the jump? Well, I'll just notice this. I think while we're talking about the Protestant reformers and Zwingli and so forth, there is another way out of this passage, out of it, another way to sort of read it, and uh, that's verse 63. In verse 63. Oh yes. Um, the crowds have left, and Jesus is now talking to, to his disciples, uh, not just the 12, the larger sort of group of devotees, right, and so forth. And many of them are about to leave him. Maybe I'll just read a few of those verses, and we can mention this other sort of way of approaching the passage. And verse 60 and onwards here. Then many of his disciples who were listening said, this saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. That's verse 63, that that last sentence. For many people, uh, going back to, to Zwingli, who's one of the fathers of this sort of perspective, this verse is sort of the hermeneutical key to, the, to the, all of the preceding discourse. That in fact, look, here is Jesus, in fact, saying that flesh really doesn't matter in the end. What really matters is the spirit or some sort of spiritual significance to what I have said. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, not about flesh. Zwingli used this as many Protestant interpreters do today to say essentially that any sort of literal meaning of eating flesh and blood has clearly been undermined here by Jesus himself in his closing statements. What you have to pay attention to, however, in John's gospel, it's the same with Paul, is the use of the word flesh, right? Flesh can be used to refer to Jesus' flesh, but throughout John's gospel, whenever flesh is used with regard to Jesus, it's used positively and literally, as in verse 114, and the word became flesh, sarx, mm-hmm. and dwelt among us. But flesh has another use throughout the gospel of John, and this is very Pauline. That is to refer to human nature under the power of sin, right? Our flesh, not not meaning our physical bodies as though to blame them in some sort of Manichaean way, uh, but a way of speaking about our fallen natures, nature. right? And you see that throughout the Gospel of John. And given that background, that that different meaning of flesh, it seems more likely that what you have Jesus here doing, instead of undermining everything he has in fact just (laughs) said, he's talking about their flesh, their fleshly way of thinking and their inability to understand what he has been saying, right? Um, There's also, uh, I think if you look a little bit more to sort of the context of the disbelief here at the end, what the disbelief actually seems to be about is not so much the preceding discussion that's Eucharistic as it is this claim, once again, to be of heavenly origin, Hmm. right? Hence, verse 62, what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, why would Jesus say that? Well, because they have issues with this idea that he has descended from the heavens in the first place. We're going back to the very beginning of the discussion, in other words, where the problem is this idea that Jesus is from heaven, when in fact we know he's from Nazareth, right? 
yeah, the, this, I'm, I'm, as I'm thinking here, um, their main problem in the Jewish context, which I don't know that we can really capture it anymore today because we've been in such a, a Judeo-Christian culture all our lives, mm-hmm. but the audacity of when a person claims to be God is such a shocking rip your robe oh sure thing which is what they did when they that heard, is that's yeah. that that's the context that in the midst of this he's talking about eating his body and blood is offensive oh, but sure. it doesn't all of a sudden take their attention away from the bigger issue yes, for them that's exactly right. right which is why in verse 62 he's back to it he's back to it exactly because the big wider context here is his claim to be divine claim exactly. to be the messiah yeah. and that's what all this stuff is about about grace and the needs for their eyes to be open that's precisely what's going on in verse 63 the spirit that gives life the flesh has no avail the words i speak into you are spirit and life it, it fits right in line with this these claims that the father needs to draw you in other words the spirit needs to awaken you to understand these things why because you're still in your flesh right and unable to see these things this is this is a claim about his audience not about his own flesh and blood very good very good let's take one more break and Chad, when we get back, you want to look at that First Corinthians yeah, passage? Yeah, let's do that. When we get yeah. back, because the reason this is key is, as you were talking with Zwingli, um, you, you know, a movement to Paul amongst so many Protestants was mm-hmm. the interpretation. Sure. But ex- you don't escape this issue. No, you by don't. Jumping no, it's, to Paul. it's right there in Paul, too. Yep. Exactly. So we'll come back to that in the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Dr. Chad Kerber, and you're hearing us on EWTN, Global Catholic Radio Network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. Uh, today we've got Dr. Chad Kerber with us, and we're doing what we can. There's a lot of great stuff here, but to, to at least narrow in on a few things. And now in 1 Corinthians 10, just putting the Gospels behind you and moving to Paul, you can't, you're not going to escape the in-your-face reality of the meaning of the Eucharist. That's exactly right. Um, just as I think there's sort of a, a selective reading of the Gospels often among Protestants, and John 6 really doesn't have much of a place, does it? Right. Uh, there's also with Paul, even though Protestants often sort of claim Paul is, is theirs with all the justification by faith stuff in Romans and Galatians. Uh, you, you take a book like 1 Corinthians, uh, you really cannot understand 1 Corinthians without the broader idea of union with Christ. It's absolutely everywhere mm-hmm. in this book, Marcus. Uh, Paul pulls it out in the places where you'd least expect it even, like in 1 Corinthians 6 where he's talking about why one should not have relations with a prostitute. He could easily just quote law. He could, the imprudence of it, he, he could go a number of directions with it. What does he do? You can't do that. Why? Because you are one with Christ and you break your union with Christ by uniting yourself and becoming one flesh with a prostitute. It's the idea that absolutely captivates Paul. And in chapters 10 and 11, we get a discussion of the Eucharist, and guess what context it's situated in? The context of participation, right? Mm -hmm. The Eucharist is the means through which we're united to Christ and become one body with him. All right. Again, there's a lot of passages. Why don't we jump right in uh, at the one that is key in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning with, with verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols, I speak as to sensible men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless is not a participation in the blood of Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because this is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are partakers of the one bread. 
I remember reading this, Marcus, uh, almost the exact same time that I was in seminary, translating the Gospel of John and discovering the Eucharist in John 6. We were also, it's also in a doctoral seminar, reading through the Pauline epistles, and we came across this text at almost exactly the same time. And uh, just absolutely riveted me that what I thought I was seeing in John is in fact also right here in Paul. That the bread, I mean, Paul, Paul's using rhetorical statements here. He's assuming the audience already knows this. Yeah. Right? It's just, we're just taking this for granted. This simply is the teaching of the church, that the bread is, in fact, a participation in Greek, a koinonia, a communion with the body of Christ. The cup is a koinonia, a communion with the blood of Christ. And then 17, this is probably what floored me the most, Marcus, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. In other words, we all become the body of Christ by consuming what the body of Christ. I think it was this passage, I can remember coming home the evening after reading this, and uh, we were also translating um, Ephesians and Colossians at the time, where Paul is constantly talking about the church as the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And I'd always assumed that that, like many other things, was simply a metaphor. And about that time, I came across this Eucharistic passage in 1 Corinthians 10, and there's 17 about eating the body and becoming the body, coming home and saying to my wife, what if this body of Christ stuff isn't purely metaphorical? What if we really are, in some sense, his body, the corpus mysticum, the mystical body of Christ? And I remember I couldn't believe those words were even coming out of my, my mouth because it's such a foreign idea, right? It, it's something that Catholics almost take for granted. But as a Protestant, this idea that we eat Jesus and become Jesus just sounded absurd. Well, and if you assume, as you said, that this isn't new, but he's basing this on the already uh, accepted knowledge of the church, mm-hmm. This is what the community understands all yes. these things to mean. Yeah, It almost brings out a, the meaning of another passage from John, from John 15, where he says, apart from me, you yes. can do nothing. Yeah, the vine and the branches, the abiding and remaining in me, right? Yeah, once again, uh, that, that theme of union, communion, abiding, remaining, participating, all these things, very Johannine, very Pauline. How do you do that? In John's gospel, you eat and drink his body and blood. And Paul? You partake of the Eucharist, the same exact thing, yeah. And we live in the the modern soup of this idea of being united with Jesus is an individualistic yes. thing. Right. Has really nothing to do with whatever church you belong to. It's right. just me and Jesus. And however I can connect with him, right? Yeah, prayer yeah. or reading his word, that's how where the context in all these passages it's really being a part of the Eucharistic community. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yes. The other passage um, that maybe we could jump to, if you want, is the familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 11, Mm -hmm. which would have been the earliest of the um, words of Mm -hmm. consecration that we all hear. Right. Yeah, we forget that. Paul's writing uh, this not necessarily long before, but well before the Gospels, way before John is written, yeah. certainly, but even before the synoptics are being. John's being written late in the, in the first century. And here's Paul uh, writing his, his letters, what, in the late 40s, 50s, and up through the, the early 60s, right? And we're already getting this Eucharistic it's already, theology. It's already common knowledge that he can build his letters on yes, in the community. That's right, which is taking us all the way back, of course, to our, our Lord himself. So when he says, again, after he gives the familiar words that we always hear, mm-hmm. for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And, and you know, there's that familiar words. But then after that, in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for... Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember, Marcus, this was like the one-two punch for me, reading Paul. You, you get to, you get to uh, chapter 10, and Paul seems to be talking about a, a literal, real, objective encounter with Christ, not merely a, a memorial, a kind of remembering, right? Um, and if you wonder, well, maybe it's, there's still some way around that. Perhaps it is just purely a spiritual sort of thing. You get to 11 and you ask yourself as you're reading this, as, as I did, why exactly is it so problematic that they're <laughs> eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? What's the big deal if my mind's wandering and I don't remember him? Well, perhaps that's because it isn't really just a subjective experience. Perhaps I really am encountering 
our holy Lord in this sacrament. And so it matters, right, how I approach him. You think of the Old Testament background. You don't just walk up to Yahweh and give him a high five, whatever. It's not a casual sort of encounter, right? You stay off the mountain. You take off your shoes, right? You have to be purified to enter his presence. This is serious stuff. That's what's going on here in chapter 11. This is an encounter with Christ himself, and that's why it must be taken with the utmost seriousness. If you, if you take the other uh, symbolic or metaphorical, then all the stuff that Paul talks about there has to be symbolic or metaphorical. I mean, uh, profaning the body and blood of the Lord, uh, are you guilty of that? I mean, yeah. What, uh, right, what would that? What would it be in, if, if it's just merely symbolic or remembrance? Yeah. Why, yeah, and why treated why treated with such uh, severity that people are actually getting sick and dying over yeah, this? Verse thirty. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Mm-hmm. I mean, that'd be almost like holding a picture in front of a group of people, and if they don't show it the right, uh, you know, worship or uh, adoration, then they die on the spot right, just because right. they didn't. Uh, you know, give obeisance to a picture. Right, right. That's really symbolic. Yeah, it simply does not fit with a symbolic notion of what, the Eucharist. What happened for me as a Presbyterian is that we would use these words, the words of institution, but we would ignore from verse 27 oh, onward. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, what, what do you do with that? <laughs> Chad, let's, uh, I want to thank you for this. Uh, I would say that We've got a minute to go real quickly. Is it been a, still a learning curve for you? You accept what the church teaches, but in reality, like the Jews there, it still takes a while to realize oh, sure. the reality of sure, our Sure, Marcus. We're always uh, people of faith seeking. Because that was even a problem in early church fathers. Sure. They were saying, don't trust your senses. Right, right. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's difficult. I mean, as, as much as I embrace the Eucharist on paper and as an idea, uh, you go to Mass, and, and uh, it does just look like bread and wine. It requires great faith, doesn't it, right? And that, again, with your training in early fathers in the, in the Middle Ages, you can see why when you have a bad philosophical background, as the Reformers did, you're going to reject the philosophical way of understanding the reality of the That's Eucharist. exactly right. But, but then you miss the feast, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks. <laughs> A lot, Chad, and uh, you know, Lord's blessings on your work up there at Walsh you. College. How long have you been there now? Been there four years. Oh, you've been there since your, co- your entrance into That's the church? That's right. Yeah, I, came, I started teaching there a week after coming into the church. <laughs> and uh, you're also uh, are a, a hike leader, right? You... That's why I lead backpacking trips. Oh, well. that's yeah. great. That's yeah. great. Well, thanks for doing that. Thanks for joining us on this program. Well, thank you for having me. And all of you, thank you for joining this program. Again, I want to always put a word out there for you to support your local Catholic radio stations. The way you can hear this is through your support to make sure they're there. God bless you. Look forward to being with you on this program next week.